the more you understand that foresight is very human dependent phenomena the more you integrate them into your practice welcome to the thriving on overload podcast I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information, and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Purush Chowdhury. Purush is a futures researcher and strategic narrative professional, the founder and president of the NGO Agahi, co-founder of Media Development Trust and senior research fellow at Institute of Strategic Studies Islamabad. The extensive global recognition for her work includes being named as Global Shaper by World Economic Forum, acting as advisor to the World Future Society, and being on the planning committee of the Millennium Project. And that's just touching the surface of her extensive and extremely impressive accomplishments. You can find her on Twitter at Purush, P-U-R-U-E-S-H. And in this episode, you will learn from her about research processes, information ecosystems, trusting societies, and contextual memes, among many other fascinating topics. Keep listening to learn from Purush's great insights. Purush, it is a delight to have you on the show. Ross, thank you so much. So you are, amongst other things, an extremely well-regarded futurist globally. You work in geopolitical and other uh you know, very complex topics. You uh, have a very deep background in journalism and setting standards for journalism. So I'd love to just hear your background, what your, your relationship with information through your life. I feel the, the relationship started in during the days when my father preferred that I read newspaper headlines. And uh, I, the one reason that he wanted me to do that, and my siblings also at the same time, was to ensure that we don't lose out on um, uh, Urdu as a language. And uh, in most cases, while reading those headlines, even though to really just, um, you know, uh, do it for my father's sake, I realized that I understood very little from reading those headlines. So that's that's what my... Uh, that's what my starting point was. But also at the same time, my mother um, is an uh, is is an ardent reader for all the novels that she must have. So we used to go to the libraries, and so my connection with reading books and reading literature was quite was quite ingrained right from the beginning. How it transformed during my time working as as a communications person in different corporate entities was that that sort of translated into reading a lot of research uh, work. And so from from that point, um, I, I think it is then when I actually moved into media. Um, 
working as a working as a reporter working in the editorial side it helped me understand how critical information is and how important it is to actually convey the sort of message that people would want to be informed by and that gave me the sense of understanding how important uh, the the work that is important in terms of forming public opinion uh but also the sort of energy and the valor sort of required in order to ensure what your what your what you're taking to the public is something which is of the highest quality in terms of its credibility in terms of its trustworthiness and and in the process us in the editorial uh, uh space are held accountable for what we actually put out there so in a nutshell that's what the uh uh relationship has been like So I I think I think another very good description as as well as futurist and uh you know media leader is uh researcher. Yeah. And I think you have this intention for research and I think that's worth digging into in terms of what what how, what is it that informs the way in which you go about your research. You see, I mean as a as a really like you know I recently found out that I'm an entrepreneur because I've been working for myself for the last 12 years and you realize okay you've never labeled yourself as such but in order to make sense to the world you know you need certain vocabulary to put out there um so there is this driving uh, uh curiosity which becomes your motivation to figure out things right things that do not make sense to you and i think that's where the re- the element of research comes in you know when you cannot make sense of something then what is the question and that question leads you to all sorts of possibilities whether be it you know consulting scholars whether actually looking reading out certain research journals or whether really like you know bringing in your own sense into how do you put together your ideas so um so curiosity leads into really looking at what the question is the question really helps you figure out what the potential idea could look like so i feel that's where the research dimension for me comes in so when i try to describe what it is to be a futurist i i t- make the people say oh where's your data and i says well well the data is all about the past And I think that's one of the interesting things about the futurist role is you can research and you can find out a lot about the present and the past but then you have to cast that into some insights which are useful about the future. So in terms of how is it that do you research to be able to gain your insights into the future? If that's not too big a question. I am imagining what is the process that that I go through in order to really look at you know and I so I do a lot of uh, anticipation and imagination exercises i mean as an individual also so i want to visualize um i want to visualize the space that i feel that needs to be created and in order to do that a lot of that has to come through your gut intuition i mean a lot of times like us futurists do not want to rely on certain instincts but those are important also whether meditation takes you there whether being spiritual takes you there whether you know it could be religious as it could be any of those aspect that makes you sort of rise rise above the physical plateau and takes you at a meta level in order to do that in order to arrive that you got to be fully conscious of uh, 
who you are, what you've become, and where you've been coming from. And once you grasp the true essence of uh, your own personal identity, it helps you place a little better in terms of the future you want to craft. And in order for that craft to become effective, you need to have these ideas, those ideas backed by certain research uh, uh, elements. And then that research elements, really, if it's about the past data, it's about the data you want to create in the future. And so uh, essentially, you're not even relying on the past data. What you're basically relying on is the vision that you have in the mind. And that vision, how do you bring into reality what language, what visuals are required for it? I think that's what essentially futurists um, like ourselves basically do. I mean, it's a very elaborate description, but it really, I feel like that's what we plug in to in terms of the larger discourse as to where the foresight community. So it's a, it may seem practical and vague at this point, but wait till things start becoming a regular part of the discourse. So you know, in this case, you're describing what are you know, often described as normative scenarios, ones where it is what it is you want to happen as opposed to what it is you think can happen. I suppose those are different tangents. But imagining that, so you have a scenario which you can envisage, which you think is, I suppose, uh, supported by your intuition as to what is possible as well as desirable. So how do you then marry that with the research you have today and being able to either point to the directions or to see whether that future is possible or plausible or or how you would uh, bring that to pass? So I'll give you one example in a very recent with the research work that I'm currently involved in, in, in terms of really understanding the dynamics of trust in a Pakistani society and what does that mean in an information ecosystem. Uh, so the hypothesis it was uh, and is, is the more you suppress human expression, the more spaces for elements of disinformation or malinformation or misinformation practices can actually take place. And expressions can be in different forms and format. It could also be, uh, you know, what another would uh, believe it to be slightly misinformed, let's just put it. But an expression in itself is, is a way of really for uh, individuals dealing with their own context and their own realities. Now, putting this hypothesis into test, so what are the counter strategies? I mean, although I don't really appreciate the word in itself fully, but what are the counter strategies for disinformation? Um, to respond to this, uh, um, this whole, uh, this whole uh, question of what does trust looks like in Pakistan came about. You know, uh, um, you got to understand uh, what those dynamics and underlying factors are in order to really build. So what am I hoping and what I'm envisioning as a desired uh, uh, outcome that we need to be able to create uh, uh, an environment where there are um, more trusting societies as, 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 as compared to people with low level of trust, high level of security, uh, uh, safeguarding more of them personal selves. And then so how do you become a society where you trust uh, your, your institution, you trust the people and the community that you're with? Uh, and what are the missing links in the process? So how does that research plug in? I mean, that's the desired uh, space that I want to take the research in. 
But as far as what the present condition really looks like is that we live in an era which a lot of people call as a post-truth era. As that takes form in the current uh, circumstances, what does that mean? Are the institutions misleading the public? Are the politicians spreading or are the source of disinformation? Are there factors within your society that really like want to defame individuals and, and, and a group of people by, by really you know, creating elements of malinformation. When you deal with that, when you grapple with that, you need to have certain answers. And I feel that that to one degree, this research could give you that a glimmer of what that answer could look like potentially. So, so in a minute, I want to dig into your information habits and uh, you know daily practices, but also, but before we get to that, you, you've been involved in this creating a media credibility index. And that's pretty uh, relevant today as... You know, probably there's a, as much or more than ever, there's a variety in credibility in the media that we access. Uh, some of it more obvious than others. Sometimes very established media are not as credible as we might like them to be. So how, I suppose, try, trying to pull this into something which is useful for individuals. How can individuals be thinking about the credibility of the media that they, you know, choose to choose to consume um i think a lot of that has to do with your biases um what you believe as an individual is credible uh basically boils down to what set of values do you share with that media entity or media personnel and so when you when you and it's a very i mean although it's a very transactional sort of relationship in in terms of sort of the information we consume. So for the individuals to determine what is credible is essentially coming from his or her personal biases. And those biases could be based on certain value sets uh, um, that they sort of associate with that particular uh, entity. So I feel like, um, yeah, credibility is, is very... Uh, specific to the needs of that individual but how can we structure that in a in a in a meaningful way where we can make that distinction within their cognition that uh you know what you feel is um uh, is what is credible but is not really credible and these are the parameters that makes uh, uh um, anything or anyone credible enough and so when you slowly make that distinction, um, it becomes part of their own mental model also. So replacing, it's not really replacing, it's making space in the existing me mental model for them to really question uh, what is that that they think is credible. And, and, and that element of doubt, that element of curiosity, what if the other person that I'm not watching or I'm not reading has an alternate view which could be perhaps a much more logical, fact-based view. To create that sort of space requires a lot of effort on developing those frameworks. So the Media Credibility Index is that framework that offers an understanding of what is really happening, what is being discussed, who are the players that are discussing those issues, and in terms of uh, uh, how many people are watching those players at the same time. So it's a really mishmash of different indicators put together in order to really make sense of uh, um, the in, the media environment in the country also. So that is something that I feel like uh, at an individual level, it's it's very personal. 
and and in order to make space in that uh, in that uh, personal uh, uh, mind the language plays a very important part i cannot be talking to you in urdu and expecting you know you to really make space for me uh, in your mental model uh, you do not understand language presumably but uh, uh, <laughs> i don't so uh, had you understood it perhaps you perhaps pay attention so attention plays a very critical how do you create that distraction in a language that can be acceptable and palatable to that individual so not expecting you're going to hammer the information in but just create enough room so that the attention is paid you are listening to the thriving on overload podcast if you truly want to increase your information productivity then check out the thriving on overload interactive course It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com/course to find out more. Now back to the show. I'd like to sort of switch to your your work. So you do a lot of work in a very macro level in terms of futures at a national and international level are very complex topics you work on specific research projects and uh, no doubt have a whole wealth of interests so what does your day in information look like if there is a typical day what are what are the how do you what information sources do you use or what times of day do you use those how do you pull those together to be able to uh, gather your insights So I don't need really insights uh like every day right insights are very are subjected to what what I want to do in life and uh who I want to become so insights are very uh insights are core dependent on the sort of uh, uh platforms that I'm developing so I'm not going to be consuming everything um I consume bulk of my information is basically infotainment means that makes me you know smile means that makes me think like it's extraordinary how humans actually can plug in certain information in a format which is practically less than a second it's a gif and it makes all the difference and it's able to trigger that emotion so a lot of the entertainment content that i'm able to share with my family and friends so that's what an average day looks like days where i'm actually really engrossed with the researchers that i work with with the partners that i uh, uh i provide services or the clients that day particularly boils down to what the ideas are and much of the time those those ideas are really supplemented the sort of insight that i would draw in from our leading practitioners in the in that subject matter so if it's if it's a foresight project i would be consulting uh, the leading practitioners in that area based on the sort of framework that i'm using the methodology and the technique so i really look at like so for instance i would really look at the evolution of uh, how foresight methods and techniques are evolved uh um who are the new uh, uh constituents what are the new constituency that are contributing to that uh, uh research work that is required to develop new uh, techniques and methods so uh, a lot of uh, journals focusing on uh, foresight and futures 
journals that are focused on strategic communications or communication just in general, theory and practices. Um, so those are the elements that I'll be really looking at training techniques. How do you engage public, different uh, market segments? Um, so really just looking at three, four broad areas that are essentially my core strength. And how do I really, really be at the um, be be at the on top of these things? So that's uh, so a day in life would be just memes, entertainment, uh, content. Um, uh, uh, professionally, it would be basically research, new books uh, that would really interest the sort of uh, the work area that I'm uh, looking into. But yeah, essentially that would be it. Um, a lot of movies. Otherwise, a lot of movies. When I feel like I need, I'm brain dead. I will watch something on repeat so that I don't really have to think. Um, a particular area that would interest me in terms of really complementing how I do my work is uh, uh, is neuroscience that really captures my interest. Uh, I would really like to learn about how different diseases of the mind are being dealt with, whether be it. Uh, uh, mental health, or whether it be a really a purely physical form of uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, ADHD of the mind, you know, all these elements would really interest me because that means that I live in a space where information is abundant and attention, if it's a resource, and if I get like 10, 15 minutes, how do I capture it? So I'm interested in the memes piece. And there's um, in the sense that. Yeah, more more memes than there are people on the planet, and always flowing around. And I think it's yeah, some lovely ways of thinking about this whole as a living entity. All of these, uh, yeah, the memes obviously was created by Richard Dawkins as uh, this I, you know, an analogy of the gene. And so yes, these propagate some successfully, some others not. And so yeah, a, a meme can be inspiring. It can be hateful. It can educate. It can, uh, you know, take many forms. You know, it can make us laugh, of course, which is a lot of what they what they are. But there's always, I mean, I suppose, I think in laughter, there's always a nugget of, you know, some some truth. But you see, memes. I feel memes are very context dependent. What I may find funny, perhaps you wouldn't, you know, and vice mm -hmm. versa. And so the context is really uh, shaped by our own personal experiences. Uh, and that's when, you know, it uh, one particular meme in at least uh, South Asia would probably resonate more with South Asian than as compared to uh, people living in the Western end. So you you have that distinction where memes can be very context dependent. Yes. And um, and so that's the that the smart part. I what I find quite interesting, it's how uniquely um, dots connect for certain people. You know, uh, there's this one meme where uh, a dog, uh, uh, a dog has been stuck in a herd of sheep, and his head, and that's a meme for suffocation. And and you know, uh, at it's a very and if you understand, if you look at it, it has a very deep meaning to it, and yet it's just an image. It has no language yes. attached to it. It evokes things, yeah. and that, that, so that was in a way leading me to my to my question, which is, how do memes change us? How do they shape our mind? So let's say there's somebody that says, "All right, I'm only going to read serious things," 
and another person that gets involved in a world of memes and obviously they follow their curiosity and so on. So how do the in spending time with these kinds of memes shape your mind or your outlook or your perspectives or your the way you think about the world? I mean, do you have any reflections on that? Okay, from a personal from a personal point of view, uh, I feel uh, um, it relaxes you a little and it creates empathy within yourself. And that empathy comes from the fact that you have somehow raised a level of understanding uh, uh, within yourself for the people that you interact with. And so you're able to there's some deep human truths yeah, in there. And, and I feel that you you develop a far meaningful human connection through it also. Because the one who shares it and the one who reshares it, really it shows that there is some level of association happening there. There is some shared experience that yeah, is connecting. there. And those shared experiences really helps you understand, oh, there's someone else who thinks just like I think or who feels just the way I feel. And that creates a whole a whole space in your mind to allow different perspective. Otherwise, if you're stuck in a hard uh, 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 in hard research work, you have uh, very. I mean, I would have very little uh, empathy if I'm going through uh, sets of uh, data for different variables, forecasting those data sets, and really, you know, there is really yeah. very little human connection in that whole process. So then, so then, memes is a tool for social cohesion. I, I feel that it could be both. It could be for a social cohesion and not and social unrest. Uh, unrest, of course, depending on you know what the political agenda is. I mean, it can go both ways. Oh, cohesion within subsets, perhaps. Yes, cohesion, absolutely. Yes, it's so. Do you ever create memes? Uh, I don't. I'm a consumer. <laughs> I can sure. I, I consume. <laughs> so, calling back to as. Yeah, leading futurists. I mean, what are some of the insights you would share with with people around, you know, good practices to be able to have the breadth of understanding, to be able to gain insights into, you know, a rapidly changing world? I think to understand change is very important and not just to talk about it. You know, you talk about things because you see things, you hear about them. To truly understand it, you have to be amongst people. You have to be amongst people who are participating in that process to connect the dots, whether they understand that this is not only changing them, but changing other people around them. The more you understand that foresight is very human-dependent phenomena, the more you integrate them into your practice, the less you make that effort the more frustrating your scenarios are going to become, the more frustrating your your outlook is going to be. So my outlook on the whole phenomena is the more connected and participative you're going to become in your foresight practices. I mean, that's what I've done in Pakistan. The more useful uh, the effort is, the more meaning it would give. So uh, to how they recognize change, how you recognize change, and what are the gaps that are there. So to understand those, uh, uh, either it's an information gap or a knowledge gap, you need to be among those people in order to uh, create that comprehension. So it's foresight through social engagement rather than studying the data. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A data just gives you a linear view on thing. What makes it complex uh, is the human factor. That's what gives you a, a, a much more nuanced outlook. So then a lot of your work is founded on your social interactions, just Ab- the conversations and the uh, the uh, yeah the ideas and the, as you say how people are changing. I think that's that's one of the most things people need to perceive change, but they also need to they experience change. Yeah, I you know, mean they're changing in the changing world. Yeah, but you see, a lot of people uh, do not really have that. Um, so we're we're lucky in the sense that we've acquired that level of understanding and education at, through our experience and exposure to help us do that. But not many people have the ability to do that. An engineer who's been taught engineering his whole life, and that's the only, I mean, for them to really look at things that are changing, it's really difficult. It's really hard for them to do that. And you cannot blame them. Uh, they just don't have those frameworks, those, those techniques, that capability that would uh, make that distinction for them. So for them, a bl- broken lamp is, I'm going to fix this lamp. You know, uh, For us, a broken lamp would be something completely different. It's the context that it do, would we need this lamp in, in the uh, next week or not? Uh, and if we don't need it, do we still need the light? So our question becomes bigger. And uh, our context is very different. So to round out, uh, any what are any recommendations, tips, ideas, things to share with the uh, audience that can help them uh, in a world awash with information? Uh, it's like, you know, uh, learn to understand your own true feelings and understand like uh, why you're motivated to act in a certain manner. And is that good for the community that you're living in? Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. It's, it's like know yourself. Yeah. You know, you need to know yourself in order to know what information is relevant to you in the starting point. But I, I love what you were saying about know your community as well, because we all live in communities of whatever kind, and that's what makes, you know, information relevant or not relevant to us. True, true. Fantastic. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Parish. Thanks so much for your insights. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.